The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Okay, so I'm going to start recording, so stop saying Okay. How are you? Uh, tomorrow, we're going up to see uh, my son Jesse's games. We're picking his girlfriend up and we're going to drive up there. My daughter, my wife, me, and his girlfriend. And we're going to drive up there, see the game, have dinner. And then he's going to drive her back to a party at Miami. She goes to University of Miami, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking forward to that. It'll be nice. That'll be Is it, what's the weather supposed to be like tomorrow? It's supposed to be kind of crappy here. Yeah, we got some rain today, but tomorrow is going to be definitely fall weather it drops Mm. like 20 degrees here in the um wherever we are like mid ohio some somewhere you're not you're not in the valley though are you we're in the ohio valley yeah you are in the valley okay yeah it's literally the worst place in the universe for migraines apparently oh because there's all kinds of pressure gradient things going on i thought buffalo was bad for that with the with the great lakes Mm -hmm. i don't know Uh, we're the best what it can be you can be second though i don't thankfully i don't really get migraines anymore they're horrid yes they are so um hey dead bad it's still how you doing hey pete levine i'm great how are you i'm good i just got an email from the great don newman oh who as you know did uh two shows with us along with her colleague barbara zupan mm-hmm. on alexithymia the inability for people who've had brain injury it's not all people who've had brain injury but some to recognize emotions in themselves and emotions in others, which causes all kinds of problems. They had done a big study using this software to try to help people with alexithymia. And during the episode that we recorded with them, uh, Don had revealed that they were just about to launch an app. And it was such a big reveal that Barbara, her colleague didn't even know about it. So she got her news on noggins and neurons as as most people in the universe do at this point, because it's that important. It is that important. 
It really is where I get all my news. Imagine if you only knew from the universe what was on Noggins and Neurons. Are we Imagine how happy we'd be. We'd be, yeah. We're, nobody's <laughs> at war. Nobody's hungry. No. Yeah. Yeah. We're always eating. Yeah. We're doing fine. On this so. show. Yeah. So I had a concern because she had sent us a, um, a correspondence, I guess, from the company that was making the app. And yeah. You know, and it's not available yet. That's true. And so the, the blurb that they gave us, and it's on the show notes from last episode, Obex Technologies are a UK software team working with Don Newman and her colleagues to develop a mobile version of the original facial affect recognition intervention, which will be named FACES, all in caps, in the app stores. FACES is scheduled for public release in the app stores late 2021, which is right about now, I would think. But pretty okay. soon, pretty soon, where it will be free to download for clinical and academic use. And that kind of bothered me. So, because, you know, what about caregivers? Well, I'm glad we're going to talk about this because they mentioned that in the podcast that it was only going to be available for those two populations. Well, they mentioned the value in having some training behind something like this. So, you know what? I do remember that. I don't think it's all bad because I think that that can give us another tool that we can we can learn that then we can possibly train the caregivers because she talked about one of them talked about um like a social support person or I can't remember what the, the exact term is as being a person who's either naturally good at interacting with people interpersonally or somebody who has had some training being another support person so are you suggesting that if somebody did it they may not be a clinician per se but they would have to be somebody who would be trained in doing it. I have that impression from our conversation with them. And then once we can check out that application, we should be able to figure that out because I don't think, what's the right way to say this? I don't think all support people have to have a higher level of education. I think sometimes they just need to have some understanding behind things. Okay. Yeah. So all that I had completely forgotten. Now I feel like a doofus because I had emailed her and I asked her a couple of things what is it and who is going to have access to it? And she says the Faces app is an app version of the facial affect recognition intervention that they tested and has the highest, strongest, highest, strongest level of evidence for treating facial affect recognition deficits after TBI. I think we talked about it on your program. <laughs> <laughs> We <laughs> yes, we did. But if you think it would help, you could include some version of the below info. That said, anyone will be able to download the app. Uh-huh. It's just not intended to be self-delivered. Hope this helps. Yeah. Well, that's, I like that. Maybe that's a good balance. It's available, but you should probably do it with some training. Yeah. You know how we sometimes play like armchair doctor, whatever that term is called, but oh, you know, like oh, I'm not no a doctor, idea. but a, but I play one on TV. But I got Google. <laughs> exactly. I just, you know, you do this stuff for a while and you know things, but we don't know what we don't know. And so having a little bit of um, understanding behind it would probably make everything that much more beneficial. So then I, I also asked, what, what is it? Like, what would be the interface when you get this app and you open it? What does she suspect will be on there? Because I don't think she's seen it or maybe she has seen a prototype or whatever. And um, so it's a therapeutic program that consists of exercises 
is intended to help teach individuals who have problems with, with emotion perception to better recognize others' emotions, to be able to identify and relate happy, sad, angry, and fearful facial expressions in others. This is an evidence-based approach, Newman et al., 2015, and has been deemed a practice standard. Uh, Cicerone et al., 2019, for treating emotion perception deficits in individuals with neurological disorders. A practice standard. Yes. I wonder how many of us are living up to that standard. Well, I think for this, at least... You know, I wonder if they're going to be collecting data with the app Mm. and seeing if like how it works, they should at least have some feedback beyond I'm going to review the app and this Mm -hmm. app sucks. This app is great. Yeah. This is the app that is designed from that program that she created at UB, correct? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think it's really cool because one of the things that she said at the end of the second episode is that she's tired of creating things that sit on a shelf. Yeah. And I hope that this helps with delivery and use of it. Yeah. They had, they remember they had developed this basic thing, but it was very difficult for some universities to access it. Clinicians needed passwords. It was driving everybody nuts. So in an app, hopefully it won't be sitting on the shelf. Yeah, I hope not. Okay. I got one. So my daughter, Emma, you know, she's starting to apply to colleges or will be very soon. Mm -hmm. And she met with her academic advisor and uh, there was a tease that she thinks there's a maybe a good chance that she may get a full ride for the master's degree part. Ooh. So I don't want to jinx it, but uh, there's a school out in Tennessee that has a speech language pathology program, and it doesn't have a doctorate program. Apparently, if there's a doctorate program, it sucks all the cash out of oh. any kind of scholarship money hmm. because it all goes to whoever's going just for the PhD. So so that was good. It's kind of far, and I'll miss my daughter. But uh, all right. That- not close. I thought you were kind of close to Tennessee, closer yeah. than I am. You would think, you would think, but it's about six hours away. Oh, that from, is kind of from that particular. Mm-hmm. We can pay for flights. Mm-hmm. Come up. That's that's exciting news. Yeah, it is. That is exciting. Oh, I know it's exciting for you. How does she feel about it? Well, I think you know the schools that she wanted to. Why to, you know, all the whole time growing up, she only wanted to go to go to Ohio State. And I can understand that. Yeah. Um, although people who are from Ohio that went to Ohio State of my generation said it was a dump. <laughs> really? And, and like a lot of universities, you know, they came up wow. and they built it up and built it up. And now it's this force to be reckoned with. So she went to OSU for a semester and she got a B plus in chemistry and it freaked her out. And she is a very good student. Like she's an academic advisor at um, at University of Cincinnati. In fact, she's at the second tier of it where she's overseeing the other academic advisors. So she doesn't like getting B pluses. That, yeah, didn't, that didn't work for her. That though knocked her out of physical. Th- it didn't knock her out. She could have done fine, but she felt at that point that if this was the kind of stuff that you're going to study chemistry, which you don't really even need as a physical therapist, that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to be a PT. So that shifted her over to speech therapy. And it's a much better fit. I think I mentioned this to you before. She works in a rehab hospital, same one my wife Isla worked in, same one I worked in, our lab was there. And when she's walking around interfacing with OTs and PTs, she's like, OTs, they're, they're you know, they're toileting people. I'm, you know, I know that's not the only thing y'all do. Um, and PTs are, you know, struggling to get people to stand up. And she looks at the speech therapists and they're all just playing games. She's yeah, like, right. I love games. So uh, I think it was one of those 
things, you know, kind of like Barbara Zupan just happened to be sick of her job and just happened to look at Australia for jobs. And they said, there's a job there in Australia. Um, Some of the, you know, every decision in my life is just so much a roll of the dice. You know, I, I met Isla, my wife, because she was a clinical instructor of mine in school. So you never know what's going to happen. But so the schools she's looking at are again, OSU, University of Toledo, Case Western, Mm -hmm. which she thinks she can get in. Her grades and her scores are high enough, but boy, is it expensive. Mm -hmm. But she might be able to get some money. Um, Let's see. Also, University of Cincinnati, um, IU, which is Indiana University, which is Don Newman. Oh, Pete, I didn't remember that. Well, we get really confused about those schools. There's IUPUI and there's IU, and I I, I don't know if they're the same, but it's in that state. Isn't the state of Indiana? <laughs> That's the best I can do for you. So there's there's a little um, challenge. It's it's tough for students. It's such a challenge to to get to get into and and get your master's degree in anything. So let's mm-hmm. um, let's look forward to that. Indiana University School of Medicine. Yep, that's where she works. That would be a couple hours from here. So that would, oh, that would be nice. Yeah. She'll make the right choice yes. after they all present their dollars to her. Yeah, yeah, it's a good problem to have, I suppose. Yeah, it is. It's a little bit of a stressful time doing all of that. So I have a couple quotes from Barbara and Don. This was a the quote where. Barbara Zupan is talking about um, the rush of rehab leaves no time to think about things like emotion responses. And people are so rushed. And we talked about how maybe a lot of it was, well, we can't do anything about it anyway. So that's not our, that's not our department. Sorry. So um, yeah. So let's, let's have a listen to this one. What happens is when when people first have a brain injury, there's often so many things that they need help with, right? And so you're focusing on, let's get them back to eating. Let's get them back to walking. Let's get them the skills they need to go back to work or to their life. And so this whole emotion, empathy, social cognition side of things kind of gets forgotten about, or in some cases, isn't recognized as a problem because when you're in a hospital or rehab situation, everything's structured and everything's happening with a specific purpose or reason. So sometimes those interactional problems don't show up, but also people are um, too busy focused on other things. So then these people go home and they no longer have this regular therapy and everyone thinks they're ready to go. You know, they've got the skills they need. They should be fairly successful and it all falls to pieces. (laughs) And that's because if you're not Um, responding or interacting emotionally and using social communication the way people expect, then that creates huge problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what she said. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we agree with that. You know, you know, Kessler, um, Shirley Ryan Ability Lab Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago used to be called um, Ranchos Los Amigos, uh, Loma Linda, um, Moss Rehab, Braintree, uh, TIRR down in Texas. Um, all these great rehab hospitals, I wonder if they are measuring this stuff. I mean, they're doing a neuropsych eval, but are they getting anybody in there to, to test them and say, does this person feel emotions? Do they recognize emotions? I think there's a lot to this. And after listening to that part of the conversation and pondering this and now hearing it again, I think brain injury recovery is not something that happens quickly for most people, right? And sometimes I wonder how much how much of it 
needs to be the process. And oftentimes when people are in the hospital, they're being kept alive and we are dealing with those more basic needs like eating and walking. So it is kind of understandable that these uh, higher level skills, if you will, are not going to show themselves until they're in that less structured environment because the less structured environment now leaves us open to deciding, what am I going to do with my day? Oh, for the past four months, somebody has been making my meals for me. Now I'm hungry. I don't know how to do this. Like family members are busy. They're working. And so it's, it is like a, a recipe for disaster, but I don't know necessarily that the answer is in the hospital system or the rehab system. You're letting them off the hook. Okay. No, I'm not letting them off the hook. I think it goes back to a, a better program for discharge. We need to be looking more towards the future and providing some supports some information and supports for when this happens at home. I see what you're saying. You're not saying that it shouldn't be done in the hospital. You're saying there's not enough time to do it in the hospital because there are things like toileting and feeding and not choking on your food and not hitting your head on things mm -hmm. that should be dealt with first. Yeah, it's um, like a triage or a prioritization factor. kids, uh, you can donate to Nuggets and Neurons. There's a QR code on the Podbean website. You can just scan it. And also there's a Venmo that you can do it. It's at Neurons is our address or whatever you call it. And, and thank you to all of you who have been donating. We yes, appreciate it. It's very nice. And remember, 20% goes to the Brain Injury Association of America. Brain Injury Association of America. <laughs> Um, 20% of it goes to that if you if you donate a little bit, and it doesn't have to be a lot, it be a little bit. In some ways, it's like just showing in a, a little bit of appreciation if you're getting something out of it. Yeah. And, and don't forget to join the Facebook group. That'll be helpful, too. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so yeah. good. Yeah, it's good stuff. You know, the way these guys were talking about it, doctors Zupan and Newman, it, it is such a cluster, you know what, once they get outside the hospital that I, I wonder, <laughs> thank you. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> Deb has a cup and on it has, has a word that would be the other half of cluster. And uh, yeah, I just happened to be drinking I forget out of my today. Was. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot for derailing. Sorry. Guy. Sorry. Um, so when they're, when they're going home, it is such a hard thing to not be able to relate to people because you don't understand emotions. I wonder if it should be moved up the triage tree a little bit, the triage tree. But then again, like if it, because what people are probably saying is that's a cognitive issue and cognitive issues encompass so many things that are problems with this person because the brain is the seat of cognition. We could try to, we're, we're, what happens if they don't have the ability to tell time? What if they can't figure out what dates are? What if, you know, they have, I don't know, any number of cognitive issues or well, where, where do we stop? This is a hospital. We need to get them safe 
functional and out the door. And so maybe you're right. It's got to be it's got to be a little bit lower priority just just because it's one aspect of this thing that's so expansive. Mm-hmm. It would be nice if a medical system could actually take into consideration a person's discharge living environment. What are the supports? Because we know that people who have more supports or or good supports tend to fare better following brain injury than people who don't have them. And we know now, after talking to uh, Barb and Dawn, that a lot of doctors are not aware of the plethora of problems that brain injured individuals have, and they go misdiagnosed oftentimes or undiagnosed. I don't know. It just seems like our society isn't conducive to healing because we're so busy and we are so fast paced. Remember what Optisel said? Which thing? <laughs> Which one? Out of the 5,000 things, you should know what I'm thinking. Um, I should. He was talking about how in the United States, the number of days that they have for that arc through the hospital sort of next step system was what, 15, 17 days. In most of the rest of the universe, at least in the industrialized countries, it's 30, 30 days. And he would call what we do rehab light. Mm-hmm. And I then you remember that he said that. Yeah. Yeah. Rehab light. And it, it, it reminded me of like Bud Light. And like, I'm sure the Canadians just laugh at the beer we have. You know, they're drinking Molson's up there. And and it, it just like it was uh, rehab light. Oh, they got us again. Um, but you have limited amount of time here. The other thing that Tiesel said was every time I go down to the States, I'm amazed at how forceful the therapy is. Like he liked that, that it was so intensive. He just didn't like the arc of time. So yeah, I mean, you're right. There's not enough time to deal with everything. But even if they, even if we had 30 days, it's still not enough time. Not for something like that. Yeah. I mean, ambulation, you can analyze it. You can do something about it. You can get the AFOs on, you can get the large base quad cane, whatever it is. Uh, OTs can do what they do. and um, Which is beyond toileting. Is why I'm toileting. I know that. Well, I mean, you guys have the upper extremities and half the brain. I don't know what else you want. And you tied occupation to the name, which means it's anything you want to do, which ties it to salient. So yeah, it's it's everything. Um, everything besides walking and transfers, you know. Um, well, and- I've been known to walk with people. Yeah. And my wife, I, I don't do this, but I, I guess I have done it. Um, but PTs, PTAs, toilet. You know, when people have to go to the bathroom, they, gotta go to the bathroom. they you, sh- you should let them go. And and not only that, but you're the only one in the room and uh, and you can work on transfers and you can walk work on walking and a whole mm-hmm. bunch of other stuff. Yeah, you can. But yeah, so there's got to be time to, to take care of this. I wonder though, if maybe the real message is in the hospital, at least having neuropsych, having the neuropsychologist get in there and say yes to lexithymia or no to lexithymia. Yeah. And the other thing is um, Don was talking about the, like the tier of problems, like the lower level cognitive or vision problems. And then you kind of go up, like I envision a triangle where the more complex brain functions occur. And she did talk about addressing those higher level functions right away, or instead of start starting there, instead of starting at the bottom, like at your more basic level. If you do that, if the more basic functions would just be naturally taken care of. Do you, you don't remember that part of the conversation? I, apparently, I don't remember a lot of the conversations. Um, so, Well, let's, let's be fair here. 
I listened to both of those today. Oh, well, okay. Um, but I edit the darn thing and I probably listened to them 15 times. Well, but I forgot. But yeah. So can you reiterate that point? Can you and can you make make the sentences? I don't know. I'm really <laughs> There was a hierarchy <laughs> of cognitive stuff. Yes, that's a great word, hierarchy. Yes. You envision it as a pyramid. And and then how does alexithymia fit into that? Somebody that Dawn works with was talking about addressing those, or Dawn was talking about addressing those higher level problems ra- initially, rather than just addressing some of the lower level ones individually. And if, if the higher level problems are addressed, then would some of those lower level problems resolve. Hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. It's like a top-down approach instead of a bottom-up. What, what in your mind would you imagine are high level and low level? Is alexithymia pretty high? I think it's pretty high. And they were talking about alexithymia, they said, is an aspect of emotion regulation, emotional processing that requires a level of cognition. So with on the cognitive end, there has to be awareness, evaluation of what you're feeling, and then understanding of those emotions. So I think it's pretty high level, uh, has a lot of components to it. So I think it's could be something that's more challenging. Um, so a top of the pyramid kind of thing. Yeah. The, uh, I got the impression that the research hasn't been done about starting at the top. It was more a wondering if that would be beneficial for someone. We're very good at thinking about compartmentalizing different things. I think in our society and working on one at a time, but this stuff isn't just a compartment. It's all connected. And then there's that piece of facial recognition that they were talking about. And some people, the part of the brain that recognizes the face as a whole is impaired. I'm looking something up. I met a a kid uh, at Kessler who, and I don't know if this is related to what you're talking about, facial recognition. He would literally look at you and you'd have a conversation. He'd turn around, look at something else and come back to you and not know who the heck he was talking about. Mm. There's a part of the brain that recognizes faces. Now, if that was hit, that certainly would affect Mm -hmm. facial affect recognition, Mm -hmm. I would think. Well, I would think so too. It's called face blindness, P-R-O-S-O-P-A-G-N-O-S-I-A, prosopagnosia. So you don't recognize the face of someone that you know, or yeah, even his father. His father was bringing him in. Oh. The kid was seventeen. I, I remember it was a a sob. Somebody hit him. Uh, you know, head injury. Nice kid, coordinated. You know, mm-hmm. just didn't recognize faces or didn't remember faces. Mm-hmm. I mean, or however, he couldn't process faces. Yeah, it was weird. He would turn around, look away, and then come back to you. And you go, hey, how you doing? My name's Joe. You know. Oh wow. It was that profound. But yeah, so all of this stuff leads to this alexithymia. And uh, one of the things that they were talking about was misattribution, misattribution regarding others' intentions. That oh, if they yeah. saw a flat affect on somebody else, somebody just didn't have an expression, they might very well believe that that was a negative thing that they were mm-hmm. seeing on the other person's face. That could be a problem. The guy's handing you your coffee at Starbucks and you're like, hey, what's with the face, dude? And I'm like, I'm not just your coffee. It's the one I've been given. (laughs) It's the one I've been given. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, I found that interesting too. And how people with brain injury have a more negative 
negative attribution bias as well. Like they view others as uh, feeling negative more often than people who don't have a brain injury. That is so weird. Well, go ahead. It is. It it reminds me again of the undergraduate class for abnormal psychology. And you think, I think I got that. I think maybe I have a little bit of that wrong attribution thing, getting hit in the head, playing four years of high school football like an idiot back in the 70s when everybody just said, hit him harder. Yeah. Well, it is a traumatic brain injury. And it is that is a similar symptom of people who have been traumatized. So even people who've experienced other types of trauma may have that negative attribution going on. Huh. Wow. Yeah, you just so, kind of don't trust people. Mm-hmm. So that kind of brings me to the whole family dynamics and that whole conversation that we were having. Because if you live with a person who now has difficulties with their own emotions on any, their own emotions, being able to identify their emotions, not feeling, not recognizing what you're feeling and all. Now you're the non-injured person having these assignments of their behavior, like reading into their behavior and thinking that they don't care and your needs now are not getting met. And it seems to me that anytime there's a new challenge brought into life, that any difficulty that you you might be having as the person who's not injured, that's going to come to the surface too. And it's a lot of stress on a family, or it can be a lot of stress on a family. Yeah. I met a, a young couple um, the other day, a functional capacity evaluation I was doing at work. And um, they had been a girlfriend, boyfriend for a long time. And it was interesting. And I guess this was before we talked to Don and Barbara. So I, I didn't even have that in my lexicon that that would be a thing. But it was weird how a very small thing cycled into a very large argument with them, like catching fire almost. And they they held it together, but I could see how maybe the girlfriend was not getting listened to or was not, didn't feel like she had been heard when the guy may just have been not processing correctly. I've had this conversation with students where we talk about relationships where people choose to stay in a relationship. So following an injury and people choose to stay in a relationship, but they're not, they don't remain monogamous anymore. And is that right or wrong? And I find it very challenging and very interesting, Uh, not challenging. That's not the right word for me because I think people should live however they want to live. But as future healthcare providers, which they'll be healthcare providers, like helping people navigate that part of a relationship. Who do you talk to about that kind of a thing? How do people get their needs met? Emotional needs, sexual needs, all of those things and still have, um, you know, maybe be in a caregiver role or make sure that that person is still well cared for. Uh, you know what? I see this stuff in the Facebook groups too, because sometimes post brain injury, people are very promiscuous and it's challenging for the, the spouse or the girlfriend, the partner. Boy, I took that quite far. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't, that was a bit of a left turn, but it kind of makes Not sense. really though. Yeah. I mean, it's impulse control mm-hmm. problems. It's this sort of behavior where you're trying to you're trying to deal with your life and maybe you know having more partners will make you happier or something i don't know i don't know i don't have the answers for those things i just like to bring up the challenge (laughs) (laughs) it's not funny hey everybody i wanted to talk to you about something that's really important 
recovery from brain injury. Since 2016, I've been doing consultations with stroke survivors and survivors of other forms of acquired brain injury. I get together with them on Zoom for about 45 minutes to an hour, and we have a good long chat about how their recovery is going, where they are in the process, what their ambitions are for their recovery, and what's holding them back. Often a caregiver is also in the meeting, and sometimes clinicians show up. Anyway, we end up talking about anything under the sun that's involved with their recovery. And then I take a few days, do the pertinent research, and email them back a sort of recovery manual dedicated to their specific recovery. Often it's stuff that comes straight out of neuroscience and neuropsychology and emerging technologies. I email that manual back to their survivor, and every one of the suggestions in the email has clickable links to more information. I'm going to be putting a link on the show notes, but probably the best way to find out how to set it up is to email me at my personal email. And that's strongerafterstroke, three words, all stuck together, no spaces, strongerafterstroke at yahoo.com. You don't have to email me anything. In fact, all you have to do is write consultation in the subject line and I'll email you back with how to set it up. It's that simple. Strongerafterstroke at yahoo.com. So let's get together and jack your recovery up. That's right. Noggins and Neurons Facebook group is blowing up. What do we got? 65 people in it? Something like that. Wow. Yeah. But I kind of like the exclusivity. That's what I'm going to say until it has like 5,000. I'm going to be like, more. No, but uh, we're exclusive at 5,000. That's right. We are the chosen people. Mm-hmm. We are. Um, are we going to continue talking about the interview? Okay. Should we get another quote out? Yeah. This is, just to give you a a little heads up, Dr. Newman talking about they have emotional responses, but they can't ID what those emotional responses are, right? So they, they feel something. I feel something, but I oh, so it's, let's let okay. her tell me. Yeah. They may behaviorally be having an emotional response, but they don't necessarily realize that they're having an emotional response. They may not sense or be acknowledge that emotional experience, even though it's coming out in their behaviors, or they may realize that they're having an emotional response, but they're not able to label or describe what it is they're feeling. So they might say, hey, I'm I'm not feeling good right now, or I'm feeling kind of unpleasant or bad. So they may kind of be flooded with an emotional experience, but not be able to make distinctions between one emotion versus another. And that would be hard. Mm-hmm. You're feeling bad. It, it could be anger. It could be fear. It could be a combination of those two, because those two are related. And you're just like, what the heck is going on with me? And then you take it out on the people around you because you don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Didn't she also talk about being able to identify the physiological response to help identify a feeling or at least identify that a feeling is occurring where they connected people to, I guess it's like a type of biofeedback and they they were sweating or they had increased heart rate and they had those physiological body responses um, and the people didn't necessarily realize that they were feeling an emotion or that 
there was a reaction of sorts until they had to make that connection. Hmm. Yeah. I, I guess that would be helpful if if you were to take your pulse as you're having a, an emotional conversation and all of a sudden you go up to 90, 110 beats per minute and you're just sitting there and you go, wow, I wonder what I'm feeling now. Like, would the physiological response even help you because you still wouldn't have enough information about what it was you were feeling. I know. I thought it was interesting when she was talking about the man who came to the the group when he didn't need help, but his wife made him go. And then how after doing some of the exercises, he started enjoying golfing with his buddies. Was that the same guy who uh, came home and his face ached because he had been smiling so much? I don't know. It might be using muscles that he hadn't used in years. Yeah. But the the guy who, who was playing golf with his friends, he enjoyed it so much more. And like, like three sentences before she said that you had said that um, experiencing emotions just makes life so much richer. So here's an example of somebody who just turned that corner and was able to see and feel emotions in them and in himself. I still think it's a fake it till you make it kind of thing. Well, nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. Yeah. As yeah. long as you make it. As long as you make it. All right. You ready for another uh, another quote? I sure am. So uh, this is uh, Don Newman and their study that used almost facial expression flashcards. Do you remember that discussion? No. I, I kind of don't either, but that, that those were my notes. So okay. let, let's see what she's saying. What we had created was the intervention. We would show them pictures of faces and we would go through teaching them what to look at, what features in the face are important, what they should be paying attention to, and how to link those features with an emotional response. So, hey, what's going on with the eyebrows here? You know, oh, look, they're scrunched. And when eyebrows are scrunched like that, what is that associated with? Yeah, I felt like I kept asking them, what can clinicians do? What can caregivers do? What can the survivor themselves do? It, what is the treatment here? Looking for a neuroplastic model. And that's kind of the closest they got was dropped a cup. What's happening over there? I don't know. I'm having an emotional. Well, I'm feeling some emotion. Here's the good news. That cup that fell off the table was... Um, empty. That's, that is good news. So they're having these emotions. They can't recognize them. And the closest thing was this sort of software that they were doing this experiment where they were showing different facial expressions. And did you happen to see a link that I put on the show notes for some sort of um, like a, almost like a movie that did exactly that? Although Zupan talked about how sometimes it's good to just sit there and watch a movie and say, well, mm-hmm. what do you think they're thinking there? Yeah, why not? And she mentioned that even though it's still acting, it's beneficial. But how much of life is spent acting? Yeah, it was on the first episode with Zupan and Newman. Uh, I have these very subtle facial changes. And it's weird how like faces and how they change can be, they're, they're micro micro expressions. And like, you can find out what people are really thinking just based on these little tiny micro expressions that, you know, can be so quick. I'm looking at these faces as they go through these just subtle changes. So I did not look at that. Um, did you, if I go into Podbean, can I? I'll just send you the okay. uh, the link. Sorry I feel like that. the girl that didn't do her homework. No, I mean, right now. Yeah. Well, sometimes it's hard to catch up because we're a fast moving uh-huh. little set of groups here. And these videos that you're going to see, and they're on the, you know, dental care is an important part. 
<laughs> I'm going to go ahead and mute my mic. <laughs> Do you see their faces changing? I think there's something wrong with me. Why? Because I'm not really seeing it. Hang on. I'm looking at another one as micro, uh, microaggressions, micro, <laughs> micro expressions. It's just a drop of an eyebrow. It's, so these are- Oh, really, I see this one. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not seeing them all. The one that you're oh. seeing- what does it show? What It's the woman whose eyes are getting wide and now her mouth is opening. She's afraid? Yeah. Yeah. And all this is happening in a dynamic situation where there's people yelling and, you know, other things going on and, you know, maybe their vision isn't that great. And so I can mm-hmm. see how it could be really hard to pick up on a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I can too. Oh man, you said something before that triggered a thought that left me. Micro expressions? Micro expressions. Hmm. I sure don't know. I have no idea. This, These are pretty, this is pretty cool though, this facial affect recognition task. So that might be something that caregivers and survivors can look at Mm -hmm. watching movies together and seeing if you can pick out the emotions. Yeah. And maybe making more of a game out of it than making it a serious activity because, you know, there's so much seriousness in life. There's there's more pressure when it's serious. There's this, there was this guy on Fox news. His name was Charles Krauthammer. Um, He he was an he was an MD and he had a spinal cord injury and it was quite high because um, you know he had to use axillary muscles to breathe. Mm. As he was talking, he would go and lift his chest and then he could say more. And I remember the phenomenon that people with spinal cord injuries, since they can't feel anything below the level of the injury, they don't feel heart palpitations. Mm. They don't feel the sweaty palms. They don't feel a lot of the emotional responses that you would feel. I wonder if it's a similar kind of thing. Charles Krauthammer was somebody who politically I didn't agree with at all, but he always seemed so cool. And I, I then I realized when when I realized that you can feel below the level of the lesion that he may have felt pretty cool because he wasn't feeling the anxiety that his body should have been telling him about. Mm-hmm. And um, I can see how people who have brain injury and can't feel all those things um, might seem kind of cold mm-hmm. and, and calculating and not very nice because, boy, they can't feel any of the normal physiological responses to all the things bubbling up inside them. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.